Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. Silberti recording in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. In this monthly podcast, we will be featuring guests from many different backgrounds that use dynamic thinking and psychotherapeutic interventions to bring about change and growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you take a listen and would like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes, as well as to use the Amazon banner ad that is featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. If you click through the Amazon banner ad, it does not cost you anything, but we do get some commission change, which helps us with some of the costs associated with putting on the show. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at forward slash CO group psych. The links to our profiles can also be found on our website. Also, if you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for featured guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events or our annual conference. So I'm your host, Angelo, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and today we have an incredibly engaging conversation with Philip Horner about his work working with racism, social justice, and privilege. And this is just a kind of conversation that really addresses some of the tough but important pieces that I think a lot of us struggle with, both as group members and group leaders looking at how we work with these themes, even when we're in a group with a lot of apparent sameness, how these themes of racism and social justice are always in the room. We address head on his history getting involved with these important topics, as well as um, his thoughts about how you work with being an ally while also not stepping in and speaking for people, as well as just as a group leader with a lot of privilege Uh, being white, cisgendered, educated, how he works with these themes and both addresses them within himself and makes space in the group for whatever the process might reveal. So please pull up a chair and jump into this important and powerful conversation with Philip Horner. Philip Horner is a licensed clinical social worker and a certified group psychotherapist. His work is enlightened by his training in psychodynamic theory, group therapy, attachment research, and social justice theories. Philip has been facilitating groups for the past seven years, ranging from here and now therapy groups, ally process and education groups, unlearning racism groups, and has co-facilitated workshops at the American Group Psychotherapy Association's annual conference. In group, Philip helps members uncover their present feelings, communicate them, and connect each member with their vulnerabilities. During graduate school, Philip focused on understanding how to work through a social justice lens and even wrote his thesis on how the white consciousness evolves when white people's awareness of white privilege and racism grew. Welcome, Philip. Thank you. We're really excited to have you. Yeah, yeah, it's a privilege to be here. Appreciate it. You know, first off, I'd really love to hear um, your story getting into, well, really both social justice issues and white privilege and racism issues and group psychotherapy and how those two interests sparked for you and how you found yourself getting involved in this field. Looking back at it now, it just looks like it makes complete sense. Why would you not put together understanding of groups and social justice issues? Um, cause that's where a lot of them are being worked out. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but if I look at my own past and, and to try and kind of get together, how did I become a therapist? How did I become interested in social justice and concerns and group work? And um, I'd say it actually started probably the very beginning when I was in college, uh, when I decided to go from switching as an engineering major, third year engineering major, to become a psychology and math major. And I got fully, I believe it was uh, my abnormal psych class, I got really into what was called the guardian litem ship. So where you do, um, basically you advocate for children who have been abused and neglected in the court systems. Um, so I, I continued this work as I left college and I moved to California and I started working as a counselor at a psychiatric unit for children. This work was, it, it basically involved many different children who had been taken away from their homes and were living in a non-residential um, uh, but with non-public school setups. Um, and so all of them had gone through tons of trauma in their past, uh, different kind of issues with the family or with the legal system. And one thing I just kept noticing was that the majority of them were identifying as black or as children of color, um, which didn't make sense of where I was. I was in uh, Davis, California at the time. Um, and, and to my small-minded understanding of it all, even though I came from a very uh, racially diverse city, I still wasn't fully understanding of, you know, how is this, why is 80% of the children here, children of color, there's got to be something going on here. And I started asking questions to try to understand more. And this led me to wanting to understand people and group work and how things like this could happen. Um, and with a little influence from, from people there, I started applying to grad schools and trying to be like, I don't know enough. I need to understand more. How can I do this? Um, and it led me to looking at social work, particularly. Um, partially because social work has, is, has such an ingrained social justice setting in it. Um, no matter what school you end up going, that is part of its ethics and values, to be looking into different um, areas of, of identity and I'm particularly trying to understand um, different co components of oppression, systemic, ideology, um, internalized, and so on. Uh, and it led me to Smith in particular because they have an, um, an anti-racism mission statement. And they have a thesis that, at least at the time, I know it's not, it might not exist anymore, but at the time you had to write a thesis to graduate. Um, so already I was kind of intrigued and wanted to learn more. Um, so I got pulled in and, and right away, uh, Smith, you take a U.S. history of racism class and the next year you take another one, you take another one on dismantling racism, you take another one on um, understanding multiple identities and, and, and this slowly got me understanding groups because everywhere we were, we were in a group. We might be in the smallest group right now, Angela, just two of us, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can consider it a group in some aspects. Right. Um, but there's always dynamics happening between people. And dynamics of race are happening even right now. All the time. Yeah. Right. Two white men talking to each other about race. Right. How interesting is that? In Boulder, Colorado. In Boulder, Colorado, a very white place. <laughs> so you might ask, and I get this question a lot, it's like, well, why are you in Boulder if you want to do this work? And usually my first response is, well, where, where else should I be? Because this is a very white place um, that believes it's progressive in a lot of ways. In some ways it can be, in some ways it's not. And around race, there is there is some awareness and there's also, I think, this what I call aversive racism, which is uh, it's kind of joked as the um, liberal progressive who believes they don't see color and who don't see a difference and everybody can be the same, when in reality, because of the institutional and um, systemic setups, it's not the same. Um, but there are still things different, and, um, and there's plenty of examples and research to show for that. But when people ask me that question, I, I do think about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm in a, a, a very white place. It's only gotten whiter since the floods, mm -hmm. and um, I have difficulties with that. I grew up in a very diverse racial, pl racial place, Durham, North Carolina, and it's hard because I know the influence of being around difference. And I think that's such an important thing to be around, any kind of difference. Uh, in this case, uh, different uh, races, uh, being able to interact and learn and grow from that. Um, and there is a difficulty with that here. And it takes a lot of um, work to be able to engage in these ideas without just falling back on what I call is, uh, I, I came up with this term in grad school, is we, we fall back in our, our happy privilege cycle 
where happy privilege cycle where uh -huh. we don't have to think about this we don't have to interact with it and we can just sit with it and be like oh everything's fine because i don't have to think about it because i i'm a white male i I'm about as privileged as you can get um and i don't have to interact and deal with it because it doesn't seem, and I say that with a question mark, it doesn't seem to affect me, but it does. And I think in some terms, you know, if I use an analogy, it's easier to see this with men. We can see how um, male privilege is such a strong, ingrained thing in the patriarch we're part of, and it affects men, because it says men shouldn't cry, men shouldn't feel. And you, you and I as therapists know this is not true. Men should be able to be emotional. Men should be able to uh, want to do uh, things that are classified usually as uh, more uh, feminist or um, so if you take that at the same thing it's the same with white people I'd say that most of us have lost most of our culture don't know where our history is don't know where we came from don't know why we celebrate certain things or religions we just hold on to it as it's something and we don't ask the questions so there's parts of that white privilege that actually um, keep us ingrained in certain social kind of contexts and don't allow us to explore outside of it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where it comes into groups. Mm -hmm. uh, in so many ways we look at inside of group dynamics and happenings, um, we are constantly thinking this is how we should be or that's how we should be and, and not realizing that the differences lie in the room even between white people or in their own ethnic backgrounds or cultures. and. Um, that haven't been explored or even thought about. And a lot of times that's partially because, well, we've been told all our lives we don't have to. And told our lives by multimedia, our parents, our family, our school systems, uh, you name it, walking down the street, this is who we should be and this is how it should look. Mm -hmm. I go on a tangent, but it, it goes right off of, because groups really became something I valued a lot when I was in grad school. Um, through a, a mentor of mine, um, Paul Gitterman, who was a teacher of mine at Smith. And I was fascinated by how he ran this class. He ran it like it was a group, which, you know, uh, for many of us, we, we've seen this a lot. Um, and it was just so interesting because we were learning all these things while he was basically facilitating a group. He acted, he had about 15 of us, which is, you know, a pretty large group. Uh, understanding Paul's very charismatic character, he can do it. And he did, and he, and he allowed us to push and fight and everything. And it was beautiful to notice us being able to regress and grow and learn and talk about ideas and then experience them all at the same time. And I thought about this as I was thinking about <clears throat> my thesis, um, which, uh, as you described earlier, was uh, looking at the consciousness of, of, of a white person, of us, and how it changes. And like, how do, because this thesis came about because I was, in my dismantling, I can't remember, dismantling racism class or US history, I can't remember which one it was, but I was questioning, I was asking the ideas like, what do we do? What do we do next? Because that's the question everybody's asking. And I'm starting to get irritated at this question because I think I have an idea of what we do. And everyone else is asking the question, which is great. Um, and my answer to that is usually, let's start with looking at ourselves. Let's start with seeing how we interact and are part of the equation. And how better to do that but in groups? This is just like you see in groups, we get to regress, we get to fall apart, we get to come back together, and that's the point of it. And if we can do that together, you know, be it a group of white people or be it an interracial group, trying to have these conversations, then we're able to actually dive into some of the more vulnerable places and maybe come out with connection, which is what is going to allow us to make actual change between each other mm -hmm. around small things or big things. So you really saw a group as being one of the main instruments or tools people could actually use to dismantle racism, both in internally and on more of a systemic level. Yes. Wow. So much so. Most of the work I do now with my colleagues and allies are in group situations at the presentations at AGPA or, or local. Um, and we all kind of do it in a group idea because that seems to be the only way we can get people talking together and helping facilitate the conversation. But um, as we, we know how powerful group can be for people, and sometimes more powerful than individual, is allowing them to be seen by others and working with the conflict in the moment it's happening, rather than, I say this so many times, as therapists, we get to, we get to talk about these uh, conflicts or, or traumas or, or 
history or stories way after they've happened, and we sometimes still see the affect that's left over, and it's very present in the room. Imagine if we actually had to deal with it, and trauma therapists will tell you a lot about this, if we deal with it in the moment, you can do so much more. Mm-hmm. And so in groups, that's what kind of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're working with it in the very moment of, of what's happening, and if you're doing that with um, uh, conversations about race or privilege, you're able to really help people with their internalized conflict of the situation and see how it's affecting people in that. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking uh, about this kind of along two lines. Yeah. Uh, working with racism within a group setting, one is being a member and then the other one is being a leader. <laughs> T- to, uh, to start with a member first, uh-huh. um, there is a lot of resistance to being a member and to addressing these kinds of things. There might yes. be interest, but I think there's also this is the kind of situation a lot of people might find really intimidating, perhaps yes. especially white people, privileged people, yep. all, all of those kinds of things. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what uh, people find so intimidating about it and what your thoughts would be about working with that resistance, working with that intimidation yeah. um, as a member of this kind of process. It's a really good question. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I experience the uh, resistance all the time. Um, and particularly because I'm starting up a new online racism group and, and I'm having less and less referrals from this one than I did before. And well, I shouldn't say referrals, maybe uh, call-ins. I'm getting referrals, which is wonderful. Um, but I, I think it's a kind of twofold thing. I, I think whenever we look at something we feel, maybe I should start with saying, not all of us see this as an issue. A lot of people will look at it and say, no, what do you, you know, everything's fair. Equality has happened. Uh, we had a black president. Uh, and there is that perspective. And we have to be open that that's how people feel. And we have to have that curiosity um, for them and have that discussion with them. But a lot of times they're not going to jump into a group that's saying, hey, here's a place for white people to talk to white people about racism and how they can work on their own racism. Most likely they're not going to be the people who jump into it. Those are the people you probably gonna have very difficult conversations with outside of that. Um, so for the kind of group I'm talking about where people are coming there with intention of like, okay, I realize that I have some racism, I'm part of this equation. The resistance towards that I think is when we bring that up, it reminds us that we are part of this, that we have a part to play every day when we walk around, it's with us. Um, that as much as it's hard for us to see because we live I'd say a good portion of us live in a pretty colorblind culture, acting as if we're all the same, there's no differences. And so then trying to open that idea that actually there are differences and here are some of them to give and here are some of the benefits of that and negatives, even to to white people there's some negatives to it. Um, And I think opening that is like taking a spoon to a wound and saying let's look in there it's gonna it's gonna be mm-hmm. better for you it's gonna feel better but it's really gonna hurt mm-hmm. and you're not gonna feel comfortable like most groups but in this way you know right away this is not gonna be comfortable there might also be guilt and at worst case is shame and I see shame a lot because people might know they might have moved to Boulder knowing that like, it's all white I'm not gonna have to deal with this issue anymore um, and so the shame, just what does it do? It, it pushes us away. It makes us isolate away from something. If I get people to guilt, that's actually a good place for us to be. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that and maybe work on that. And so I think if we're, if we're stuck in more of a colorblind space, and to define that in case people understand, is believing that everyone's the same and we don't see color in that idea that a black man and, and a white man are just the same. There's no differences. Yet if we look at our criminal justice, justice system, we see that there's so many differences based on um, what would happen if two people had the exact same crime. Mm -hmm. And that's just one small example. But it's also hard for us in a privileged state to see that. Mm -hmm. So I think if we stay in that colorblind aspect, then we think everything's fine because we're not being affected in a way we think. We don't see it as visually or feel it as visually. Uh, And I bet some people even get frustrated by it. I know people who are angry and upset by the idea that Racism still exists, and white privilege is real, and it happens. 
So that's a, a tad bit of why I'd imagine members to have difficulty entering a group like this. Well, it seems like one of those dilemmas that oftentimes maybe the people that would benefit most from this kind of group yep. are the people that are going to be the most resistant to, to joining. Yeah, I uh, had a good conversation with someone who lives in, um, I think it's France, came to visit our house and we were talking about racism in different countries and uh, you know most of my studies have been in the US and I know racism looks different in every country so I'm not here to talk about that but we were talking about my groups and ideas of it and he goes so you're trying to work with the people who are most resistant and I'm like well I would like to work with them and I realize they won't be coming to this I'm trying to work with the people who actually want to be doing this work and are struggling and are falling back into their own, as I talk about the circle of their white privilege, you know, into their happy white privilege place, and helping and supporting them so that they can continue to do these difficult discussions with those people who are really resistant. Because as therapists, we can't like secretly find a way to find the resistant white people and have them come in and then basically talk to them about it. We have the ability to talk about identities, and that's part of it, and we explore them with people, but we're not there to have our own agenda. Mm -hmm. So as much as this would be really useful for the very resistant people, those people are not going to come. Mm -hmm. And so I have to work with the people. I, have to, I think of it as I'm here to support the people who have an idea they want to look at this or doing work around this maybe. They might be activists in their own right trying to work on race relations or racial justice, uh, which I found some people in Boulder doing that work, and are looking for support and are looking for to make sure that they're more aware so that they can do better at their work. Mm -hmm. And not, well, as we do, mistakes all the time. You, you as a group leader know we make what, like five, 10 minimum mistakes in a group every time. So it's easy uh, activists to always stumble over our privilege. Absolutely. Well, it, it, w it makes me think about just working with the unconscious. And yes. that no matter how long you're in therapy or in analysis, you, you still have an unconscious. Yep. And yep. so no matter who we are, how familiar we think we might be with some of these social justice issues, I'm sure there's endless amounts of work that all of us can continue to do around it. Exactly. And that leads to your second question. How do I deal with it as a leader? Exactly. Well, I'm sitting across from you <laughs> thinking, um, and I wrestle with this within myself, yeah. uh, you're a white, educated, uh -huh. cisgendered, yep. attractive man. Yeah, lots of privilege coming up. Lots of privilege. <laughs> yeah. uh, how how do you work with these themes um, from that location as a group leader? Uh, the, the quick response to that would be accept and continue to talk. Accept and continue to talk. Um, and that's just as any person, like you and I, uh, it's accepting that, okay, I have privilege, and continue to talk about it. The more we can do that, the better we're going to be, and the more we're going to be able to connect with other people doing this work, people less privileged, uh, who people are oppressed. Um, in a group, it does look different because as facilitators, we're supposed to be there as helping through the situations rather than engaging in a self-disclosure constantly. Um, when I facilitate, I guess a good way to think about it is when I facilitate groups that are like, last year I did a, a group on microaggressions at AGPA. And I did it with a colleague of mine who identifies as a woman of color. Would you say uh, you did a group on microaggressions? Yes. What are microaggressions? Sure. Uh, so originally the term, to give little history to it, was the idea of, uh, it, and I don't like the word small um, or micro, because mm -hmm. they still feel very aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, but they are little things we do unconsciously all the time. And sometimes we don't even know it, sometimes we do. Um, they could be small sayings, they could be um, asking for something from someone um, towards people of color. That was originally what microaggressions were. Uh, and so examples of that might be trying to learn on the back of a, you know, like uh, I'm going to oppress this, this woman of color and then I'm going to ask you to teach me how not to do that to you. It's like, okay, you want me to take on both roles here. You don't want to step in and try and do it. And that's where the ally is supposed to help step in, uh, depending of course on the person. That would be an active microaggression. Or um, a spe a men speaking over women constantly. You see this all the time in groups. You know, One thing we do in facilitating groups, of when I'm not doing pure therapy groups, I'm looking at who's speaking a lot, and I'm trying to help navigate that so more people are able to have their voice. So this happens with men. They're speaking over women all the time. I'm noticing it myself all the time. Going to Smith, I was one of like eight, 10 men, I can't remember, of 120. And so I had a great uh, visual display of my privilege 
always happening of how people interacted with me and how my voice was being heard more by women and by men and by transgender. It was always being heard more. And so I started trying to speak less and speak uh, more poignant when I did about what I really wanted to say and trying to listen more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are just like, tiny acts. And it slowly evolved to be for in, against any target status. And I use the word target as, I don't like that word either, but it's um, one way of defining between agent and target if you take it really far back. Agent being privileged, target being oppressed population. So any kind of small thing towards uh, an oppressed population, like I said about men over speaking women. And so that's where it is kind of defined today. And you see this in groups, no matter what the group is on, relationships, it could be on trauma, it could be on unlearning racism. It's always gonna happen. It's gonna co- continue to happen. Um, and it's not something that's just gonna go away. So that's, that's a brief definition, I say, of it. Well, and that, that last point that you're making actually reminds me, you say, you're saying it's always going on. And yeah. I can think about the number of situations I've been in in, in different contexts where I'm in a group of all white people. Yep. Uh, it's a group process, yep. but it's all white people. Yep. Um, a lot of times in Boulder. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times in Boulder. Yeah. Um, would you do some talking about how it's going on even then? How you see it coming up? How race is impacting the process um, in that kind of situation where it might be easy to kind of think, it a, think of it as kind of a colorblind situation or a, a sameness? We're, yep. all, we're all same. Yes, I do. Not only racism truly affects people of color, um, and it affects white people by taking away their own cultural background and heritage. And so I might not define it and say, oh, look, this is what racism is happening in the room right now and how this is affecting all of you. But I might explore with curiosity where our background or culture or ethnicity has gone and, and how it's gone as it comes up in the conversation. Um, and I will explore for sure racism and privilege as those conversations come up more with the people and the members of the group. Um, so my role is not so much to be like, your privilege just came up and talk, because not only we know that'll cause resistance because we're hitting a wall of defense, but we are also going to just be, be attacking with our own agenda. Mm-hmm. So we have to skillfully involve a social justice lens to what we're doing in order to be watching and observing how these behaviors in all different ways, because I mean, I'm mainly talking about racism, but we can talk about homophobia, we can talk about sexism, and so on and so on about how it affects groups. And the more we become aware of it, the more we're able to see it. And the more we do our own learning and working, like we're saying, like, you know, identifying, I, I do identify as a white male cisgender uh, man, and so I have a lot of it. So I need constantly talking about it. Um, but in groups, it's so important, even in just an all white group, to notice how that's affecting the group. It's still affecting the group. Mm-hmm. People just are very unconscious, like you said earlier. The unconscious is always playing. Mm-hmm. It's always in the room. Um, and when you said that, it actually made me think about um, the d- idea of socialization, which we've all probably had the concept of. I'm sure you've grasped the concepts of it. It's, it's the idea of how we come up with our ideas, values, who we are, what we believe in. And these things become core to us at some point. And they hold on to, it holds on very unconsciously. We don't even notice it happening. It starts very early from our parents and then goes on to school, our friends, our social connections. Nowadays, computers, Twitter, Facebook, media, you can throw it all under the blanket. And as we take it in, it's truly affecting how we view things and how we think about things. And I'm sure uh, you've had times where you've been viewing something a lot. Maybe you had a TV show you really liked and you watched a lot. And suddenly you realize your thoughts and dreams were changed a little bit because of it. It's, it's very normal. It happens Absolutely. to all of us. And that's just a, a, a small outside example of it. Um, but if you grew up in a family uh, where uh, you noticed constantly how your family was interacting with, or were not interacting maybe with people of color, and were saying other things behind the doors, your views would be created by that. Yeah. You know, what's coming to mind is uh, a presentation I went to last year at AGPA with Paul Gitterman and Paul LaFouque uh-huh. on yep, yep. Uh, the cultural mother. Yep, it was yep, like originally yep. this idea by Winnicott, but I think that they really uh, been talking quite a lot about how culturally speaking, there's a kind of mother that we mm-hmm. experience through media, that we experience through interaction, that we experience all of these different ways that mothers people of different locations differently mm-hmm. and is constantly giving a kind of subtle feedback about 
how loved or valued they are within the family of the society. Mm -hmm. And that that actually has an enormous impact. And I think it kind of links with one of the things that I'm hearing you really value, which is the importance of given your location, given your privilege, really continuing to prompt in your mind again and again some intention mm -hmm. or some awareness, mm -hmm. some real conscientiousness around something yeah. that can just so easily be pulled into this unconscious, numb, kind of dissociated place. Yeah, I went to that workshop the year before it. Uh -huh. and it was a half day, I think. Uh -huh. uh, I talked to Paul beforehand and he was, um, he was excited I, I'd be coming and, I, and nervous. Is, uh, him and I got to work together doing uh, ally education and, and processing. Is this Paul Gitterman or Paul LeFouk? I was just Paul Gitterman. Yeah, Paul they're Gitterman. both Pauls, right? <laughs> they're both Pauls. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I really liked the idea that he was coming up with was, you know, this unconsciousness based off of, you know, real old theory and trying to integrate it into a social justice understanding, um, particularly for us who are doing more an analysis kind of work to, to make sense of it. And it's breaking down because a lot of beliefs in some views of analysis is that I, uh, these kind of ideas are later on in life and are created. And I'm saying, no, they're created when you were, were born at a very young age. And that's what this is saying too. And it, it's very similar idea. You know, Paul's coming at it from a, a different angle. And I greatly appreciate that because it's reaching different people. Mm -hmm. And it's saying that uh, we are all learning about our culture heritage from our early childhoods and growing from it. And some of us then later resist, and you see the family issues, Ball. I mean, you work with families all the time. You see them come up, the differences in the beliefs and ideas. And, um, and I like that because in some ways, it's more welcoming for people. Um, obviously, how I've been working with it more head-on. It's like, okay, we're, we're talking about racism in groups. Um, or we're going to be talking about microaggressions, which when I remember when I did that workshop last year uh, with Karen, it was... What's her last name? Karen Cohn Umra. I can never pronounce it correctly. And so I, I, I feel almost bad saying it out loud. But she is a wonderful um, uh, woman I had met uh, two, let's see, two and a half, three years ago about. She started doing all these uh, difficult discussions, she calls them, where people get together and have, they, the point is to have difficult discussions. And usually it's around social identities. And you really turn towards it. Yeah, you turn towards it. Don't walk away from the uncomfortable situation. Uh -huh. And I was interested, and she was the, I guess, the, the co-chair of the Racial Ethnicity Diversity SIG at uh, AGPA. And I brought up that I did unlearning racism groups. And so we sat down and talked. And, and before we knew it, we were like, we should do something together. We should talk more. And we kept talking and kept talking and kept talking and kept talking. And we came up with this idea that, we knew this would be a hot topic because we were going to throw microaggressions right into the title. And we know most therapists have a concept of it. And we were interested in what had happened. Well, our group overflowed, um, which was great, partially because people started asking both of us when we were there, what, what is this you're doing? And we would just be like, okay. And we, we'd sign off to have more and more people. And suddenly we have 34 people in our group. And it was just two of us facilitating, which still felt like a lot. Uh, in a very oval room, and uh, out of it came a lot of people's understanding, not only of what a migration looks like, but also people's difficulty with concept and resistance to finding their oppression when they are being pressed on their privilege, which you see constantly. I guess that might be the one benefit of being a very privileged person. I don't have much to go to as far as oppression. Um, so I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. And yes, that's right too. Let me keep looking at that and that. and and trying to understand it and how that's coming out in the dynamic play. But in this group, when we did it, it was just so noticeable to see the differences that were occurring and how much, you know, just, just talking, throwing the word migrations out there just brought everyone in to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. People were hungry to have this conversation and to be engaged in this kind of process. They were interested, which is great. Uh, I, I told you before this interview that, or I told you and Mark, um, that um, we, the presentation, or the workshop we're doing uh, in March at AGPA. Yeah, that, that's, uh -huh. You're doing a presentation at the conference, the annual mm -hmm. conference in yep. March. And, and tell us about it. Yeah. I think, I think it happened because I was in a group. I was in a workshop on um, untangling the crazy knots of racism. And it was like a half-day workshop. What a great title. Untangling Fantastic. the crazy knots yeah. of racism. Wow. I saw that. I was like, I am there. Yeah. I don't know what that's going to be on, but I'm going. I know it's on racism somehow. And it was super full. It was 30 people, 35 people or something. 
and I ran into an old colleague that was running it. I didn't even know she was running it. And it was, you know, Paul actually introduced us. It's like, oh, this is Christine. And, and we talked, and, and then the other presenters, uh, I sat right next to one of them, um, Patty Cox. Um, and the group was really amazing because just the things we're talking about came up. People's resistance towards it and holding on to other oppression came up or hopes for uh, you know, change or conflicts between people of the same race were happening. And uh, it was really beautiful and, and I wanted to keep going. And it was really vulnerable. Like I was feeling very vulnerable and very uh, lost in my own thoughts of like, should I protect this person? Should I say this to help? Should I, should I speak up? And I would look around and, and I asked my colleagues afterwards. I remember sitting right next to my colleague and co-presenter uh, Marseille and, and wondering as someone was asking her how to teach them about how to deal with racism and I was sitting there thinking wait this is this is a place for me as an ally to step in because she's being asked to do this and, and and in the as members we have so many other things of our own coming up because we're actually there things are happening facilitators this might be an easier process for us and I talked to her afterwards at length about that mm -hmm. and we started talking about um, actually creating a workshop on how racism affects white people. Mm -hmm. But what came out of it was uh, Christine ended up reaching out and asking if I would like to co-present a workshop on uh, reflecting on risk. So another a, a full day uh, version of what they did. They wanted to see if I could come help out with it. Um, and I was telling them that it, it sounded wonderful and I'd like to join and I'd like to talk more about it. And next thing I know, we're talking each week, five of us on this video thing. and. Um, so it's going to be a whole day workshop uh, and we looked the other day, Marseille asked and she found out that we had filled the whole thing, so 35 slots filled and we were excited and anxious all at the same time, <laughs> like uh -huh. oh okay, okay we really got to do well uh -huh. uh, and so it's, it's a, it shows that people are wanting this and are craving it and are wanting to understand it and the more therapists can have better understandings of this I think the better we can do with our clients you know, it's a trickle down kind of idea, which I know has its problems. <laughs> <laughs> let's, not, yeah. let's not go to business model here, but it's an educational sure. idea, right? Um, so the more we can become educated, the more we can hopefully help people process their own place so that they can be allies out in the world. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you're doing this with five different presenters. You're one of five? I'm one of five. Who, yeah. are, the, who are those presenters? Uh, so it's Rudy Lucas, uh, who's in New York City in private practice. Um, uh, Marcy Turner, who is a psychologist at uh, Arizona State University. Mm -hmm. um, Patty Cox, who's mm -hmm. also in private practice and also past president of the Eastern AGPA. Uh, and then Christine Schmidt, who's the one that reached out to me. It was an old colleague of mine um, who also is in private practice. And, and her and Rudy do a lot of basically awareness building around racism and privilege workshops in New York City. Mm -hmm. Going really well. They're doing like a reading one right now. It's, they're still shocked that people are paying to come and talk about this, and uh, it's fantastic to see it's actually. Oh, cool! I think out. I heard Rudy talking about that when I when I saw him at CGS. Yeah, it's very very inspiring. Yes, yeah, it's great to see that it's really blowing, and people are coming, and, and they are in New York City. There's a much vaster population of people interested in the subject, but uh, it's it's wonderful to see it, and uh, they send me the readings just so I can take a peek and and, and even jump in the group if I want, and because they do uh, some video stuff, I think with it. Can I ask you a question? Because there, yeah. there was something I associated to when, yep. when you were talking about this um, experience you had in group with uh, Marseille. Yes. Which is where you noticed her being put on the spot asking to be maybe a spokesperson. Yes. In a particular kind yes, of way. exactly. A good point. And you had the impulse, you, you had the feeling, the idea, I want to be an ally. And yeah. I want to step in here and yeah. help. Yeah. And I can imagine that's really meant to be supportive. Yes. And then I'm thinking pairing that with these topics of mansplaining, whitesplaining, <laughs> where we step in and talk about those things, which is inherently disempowering. Yes. I think. Yes. So how do you how do you negotiate that? <laughs> well, in the hopes being an ally versus talking over and, and I'm curious yeah about So that. negotiate in the world or in groups? Because they're similar. Take, I, take it wherever you want. I'm curious <laughs> okay. wherever you go with that. This is a really hard question. And one I stumbled over for like four days going up to my uh, the workshop I, I did with Karen. I should say Karen's workshop more because she really took the lead. In that moment, that was what I was propelled to do. I, was, I felt it in myself as like, 
trying to be an ally and stand up and and I decided not to. One because Marseille did not seem under stress. Uh-huh. She seemed very together and willing to and this is something she likes to do. Uh-huh. And I didn't know Marseille well enough yet. I was like I don't I don't know yet. And if this was a continuous group, if I was in a group continuously, I might take that risk to see what happens. Or as a facilitator, I might learn about the members enough to know when I need to step in. Saying that I think it really depends on noticing the distress of somebody. Because as a facilitator, part of our, um, I think, job is to help people balance that distress so that it's a growing edge and uh, also you're not taking away from something. Um, So you're allowing them to feel uncomfortable because that's important and you're not allowing them to feel uh, pushed down or stepped on. Um, So this happened actually in my microaggressions group. The exact same thing happened again. And a, a white person asked someone actually really close to me, sitting right next to me, a woman of color. In several different ways, this came to the same person of being like, teach me, teach me, how do I do this? I don't want to take over. And the person had very good intentions of the questions, and there was nothing so much horrifically wrong, and this is why we call it microaggression. They wanted to learn. They wanted to be a better ally. They wanted to be aware, a, a very aware white person. And I noticed it kept happening, and not that the, the woman was distressed, but I could tell she was kind of getting annoyed. Uh, and so I turned to her and asked, uh, I won't say her name, but I asked her if, if I might step in and, and share something here. And she looked mm-hmm. at me and said, yeah, okay, cool. And she, she gave me space, and, I, and then I presented something as a way to help this person. So it was basically a white person talking to a white person saying, here's an idea for you of how to work on this question you're having. And, and here's how it's coming up in the group. So I just continue to be the facilitator for the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I worried about that move there. Not only because this is a workshop, only have an hour and a half to do this group in, but I, I was still battling with how do I do this? You know, like we learn as group therapists, we continue trying to get better at things. And this is still something I'm trying to get better at. And afterwards, I got feedback from that person who I asked that question of and or stepped in in that way. And she said that, it, it made her feel much better to know that the facilitator was noticing and being aware of what was happening mm-hmm. and that she was surprised how much better she felt once I asked that question. She's uh-huh. like, she really appreciated that I actually turned to her and, and asked rather than taking over man explaining or something. Being like, oh, I got that. Mm-hmm. That's saying I know better. Mm-hmm. I asked, I said, would it help or would, would you like, you know, presenting it as an option. And then they can be like, no, I got this. And then go on. And the person said, yeah, please. I was like, I'm, obviously she was annoyed to some extent. And it seemed at that moment to work. And at the same time, I could do that again and think the exact same thing and it could blow up. Yeah. And that's just more to work with. And more to work with for me and the members in that moment. So, well, I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about um, some of the groups you're currently running in Boulder Mm -hmm. and kind of where um, you see yourself going as a group leader. And then I have another piece to that, but I'm curious <laughs> just about, yeah, currently the groups that you're running uh-huh. um, and where, where you see yourself wanting to develop as a group leader. Uh, well, so I'll start with the easy part. That's always, maybe I'll flow into the harder ones. Um, so I run two groups right now. Um, I'm hoping to expand it, but I run more of a general here now relationship group, process group, uh, a pure therapy group, I should say, that all of what we're talking about can happen. And then I'm running and unlearning racism, uh, you know, exploring our whiteness and, and uh, trying to deal with racism. And it's designed for white people to talk to white people, saying that it doesn't have to be just for white people. But that's kind of a place. It's a place where white people are talking to other white people about their racism, their privileges, and trying to work through the difficulties of those because there's shame and guilt, as we talked about earlier, with that. As we brought up earlier, that's also a group that has a lot of resistance to people join. I, I keep having therapists being like, this is a fantastic group. I'm glad you're doing it. You know, especially social justice-oriented therapists. Like, this sounds great. I will send people your way. And I get very little calls. Mm-hmm. And I'm not shocked by that. And I, I'm okay with that. You know, the people I get really want to be there. And so they get a lot more out of it. And for that group, I will say, I, I think of it as more of a supportive group for people. It's, it's not always going to be therapy like I'm here to really explore your unconscious, although we are because of racism and privilege. Uh, but I'm not there to um, press so deeply on those parts. I am there to support them in their own process so they continue to do their work. A lot of these people are doing uh, racial justice work 
in their workplace, be it for the workplace designed for that, or just in their workplace and friends and family and trying to be better at it. Mm -hmm. So those are the groups I currently have going. Cool. And I'd like to expand that to a couple of those kind of groups, but it's Boulder and it's tons of very skilled therapists, group therapists, so uh, I'm pretty happy to have two groups. So I mean, it's a work in progress and around this you are really dealing with resistance just in so many different forms constantly. <laughs> yeah. I've gotten resistance just from, uh, I think I lay, you know, I think just by the name of the group I've gotten resistance sure. people. Like being like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, and, and being pushed off by it, and that's okay. And we can talk. Well, that leads me into my next question, which is, what do you see as your current edge? <laughs> what, what's, what, what's that current edge that you're working as a, as a group therapist? I mean, I could answer this in many ways. I could give it just uh, a and be like, my awareness of myself yeah, yeah. in the group, and, and uh, that's so too we might be working with resistance with you in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> if I don't have resistance, I mean, there's nothing to explore. That's right. Um, I, I would say truly, because this is something I'm more and more focusing on, and I'm thinking more and more of how to bring the aspect of social identity, and particularly racial identities, into the room. I'm trying to work much more on just noticing myself. Um, so how it's coming up in group, exploring that, and how it's how it's falling apart. And so, I'm hoping to be starting a group soon with uh, with a colleague, co-facilitating a group, uh, a woman of color in this instance, clinician of color, I should say, in the hopes that we can both help each other notice what's happening. And that might be useful when we're working with interracial groups. I don't think as a white person I can run a group that's uh, on racism and <laughs> be the only person I think that's uh, narcissistic in its own attitude, but. I think as I continue to explore this and talk and talk and talk, and that's what I do a lot, and to the point I, I joke about this, but and I wasn't aware of it that I won an award at, at Smith for my thesis, and it was uh, it was a joking award, not like a uh, real happy dappy award, but it was uh, um, uh, the award for the person who talked most about their thesis. <laughs> and of 120 people, supposedly I talked the most about my thesis, and that shows that I'm interested in it, and shows that that's my belief in how I'm going to continue to do this yeah. and how I'm going to work on this. So that's more of a general answer. Is like the more I can be aware of my white male cisgender privilege in groups, the better I'm going to be at noticing and working with it with other people. Um, we can't be hypocrites and walk in and be yeah. like, oh, I don't know what they're, but they got something. So continuing to look at your blind spots, continuing to look Always. at your reactivity yep. and inviting that feedback from other people, especially co-leaders. Yeah. Yep. And I'm constantly looking towards white allies to notice it for me and in the groups I'm part of otherwise, my other allies, I'm asking them to give feedback when they can if they feel comfortable with that. You know, and, and, and I get it. And it's, sometimes it's hard. You know, you're saying the resistance that comes up, I, I'd say that I'm just at first like, oh, and then if I'm in a good place and I'm taking care of myself, I can be like, okay, oh, yeah, that happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's the part, as far as around this kind of subject, that's so important. I can't stress it enough. And that's why I've been on Unlearning Racist Groups as a member uh, for, I was for four years. And I will say that's a huge part of who I've become because of looking at it and being able to talk about my moments that were obviously racist, talk about my moments where I noticed my privilege stand up and scream, and having a group of people be like, wow, that's hard and be compassionate and, and encouraging me to keep talking about it, that made me realize I can explore this. Totally. It doesn't have to be something you feel shamed about. You don't need to feel shamed about this. This is something we all have and work through. And, and saying that, I know people will be like, what? No, not me. Uh -huh. And truthfully, we all grew up in this country. We're all affected in different ways, in different aspects, depending on the culture and the small little scope we were in, that this is part of us. And... Um, if we can have compassion, and that's a huge piece of this, if we can have compassion for each other and what's happening, not, uh, what, what did a colleague of mine recently tell me? This was, this was during my research, someone told me, I think it was my research, oh, I wish I knew where this came from, but someone told me once, I like the term calling in, not calling out. Uh, calling in, not calling out. And uh, I asked them about that, well, what do you mean? And they said, uh, well, I don't want to uh, push people away when I'm having these conversations. I want to bring them in. I want to be an ally and friend for them as they're going through this process as I am. And so calling in gives this more compassionate line to it, being like, I'm here for you, Angelo, and I'm not trying to push you away, and I want, you, I want to show something to you, and I want to do it in a way you can hear it. 
That's what it's trying to say. Rather so a person's invited, their, their blind spots, their ignorance, their privilege, all of those kinds of things, whatever it might be, are invited. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And can, words can be put to it and yep. all those things. And calling out sounds like, Angelo, how, right. that was so racist. Yeah. You'd be like, ah, oh, and then you fall into shame. And, sure. uh, or and it's inherently like a scapegoating dynamic, really. It yes. Yeah, it very, in a group that could be. And so that's a difficulty. And Karen and I, when we were doing our workshop, talked about this all the time about not attacking Noticing the attack, particularly from white people, this happens a lot, angry white people who are in their own development of their identity, attacking other white people. And what it's doing is it's basically stepping on other people that can help and be part of this and be more aware. It's a collective whole we're dealing with. This is not an individual effort. And so as, as we knock down other people, we're not helping ourselves, we're hurting ourselves. And so more joining. It's like, and you see this in the political landscape today too, right? We, we knock each other down rather than trying to hold each other up. So um, I like that term, switch. I like it too. Yeah, but that's just one edge. I'd say otherwise, um, my, my biggest edge in, in group generally, I, I would say is still trying to be um, keeping uh, my attention throughout the difficult process, um, particularly when uh, the difficult conversations come up. And so I'm not missing them. Uh, and to keep that attention, that means for me that uh, I need to be able to somehow become more engaged and aware. And that doesn't mean I have to talk more. It means I have to just be noticing what's happening and tracking it. Mm -hmm. And that's when people ask you, like, um, uh, I think, I'm sure you've had this happen. Don't be my therapist. Friends will say this to us all the time. And I joke, I was like, I can't be. It's too exhausting. Yeah. And <laughs> they're like, what? So I'm like, do you know how much energy it actually takes me to sit down and listen to someone intently? for 45 to 50 minutes or a group for an hour and a half, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. So gaining that so that I'm able to do that longer and not fall and just let the group run, which sometimes is great running on its own. Mm -hmm. I think it's a big part I'm trying to get better at sure. having that energy. And I would imagine some of that might be curiosity around like when, the, when there might be an unconscious impulse to zone out. Like, <laughs> yeah. what's that saying? Isn't oh. that interesting? Oh, oh that's what's, gone. Yeah, what's going yeah. yeah, and so there's my dynamic of being like, did I not want to deal with that? Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't let it anybody bring it up right yeah we see this as members all the time too so well philip i just want to thank you so much for being a part of this interview it's yeah. been so much fun to do this yeah. and uh, i just uh, so excited for the work that you're doing thank you yeah i'm excited about this I, i'm really I, I should throw out there i'm really happy to see the, the organization really coming together more and more um, and offering things like this and uh, i've gotten the impression particularly of the last few weeks talking to you and mark just the support around this and it's really appreciated uh, knowing that groups is really important uh, for the work we're doing, but also to see that you all are like pressing it and pushing it and trying to get this more open so that this is what's happening in therapy. Like we're having more groups and noticing we're always in groups. Um, so I really encourage just continuing the efforts that you all are doing and doing these interviews I think is great and um, seeing how we can put on, you know, I know we have an annual workshop every year, which is fantastic. And is there other ways we can present and, and help out and, and foster these kind of conversations? That's like, some great feedback, how we yeah. can keep this conversation yeah. kindled throughout the year. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In closing, if, if people want to follow up with you, how can they reach you? How can they uh, find out about you? Uh, there's a few good ways. Um, uh, they can always uh, email me, um, which is uh, P is in Paul, C P Horner, H-O-R-N-E-R, -E Gmail. It's probably, my name's probably up on this interview here. Uh, you can also call me. Uh, my number is 720-316-7774. Uh, and then I have a website that uh, uh, seems to not get most of my attention. Um, I know they can be kind of important, but you can always look at it. It's uh, philip-horner.com. Um, so any of those ways, uh, I'm here in Boulder. Uh, I have my private practice here, so I always am open to, if it just be a, a conversation about this kind of piece or interest in work together. I'm happy to talk. Wonderful. Yep. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you.